0: So as we have seen all the way along our journey through this letter to the Corinthians, they, although real Christians, were unduly influenced by the culture around them, and as a result, failed to live in the fullness of the gospel of Christ. The final example of their folly is seen here in their denial of the resurrection from the dead. This denial was rooted in the ongoing influence of Greek philosophical ideas that they were enamored by. And we've seen this over and over as we've studied this epistle. They were were very much attracted to the the philosophical mindset of the day, and they also had a deep desire to be accepted by the culture at large. And that that just shows up over and over again in this letter. And and that brings us to that, that quote that has been referenced many times over through the series, I have not yet quoted it, but I'm going to do it today, the Leslie Newbigin quote, because it is so, it, it, it is reality. It is the, the issue that the church is always faced with. The choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture? by the biblical story or the cultural story. And as we've seen, the problem in Corinth was that they were allowing the cultural story to have a greater influence on them than the biblical story. If we allow, as the Corinthians were doing, the cultural story to influence us more than the biblical story, we will always be spiritually impoverished in the end. If we, like the Corinthians, were to reduce our belief in the resurrection to anything less than what the Bible claims happened with Jesus and will also happen with us who believe in him, we lose. Now, lest you think that this was just something that they battled with, listen, this is an ongoing, this is an ongoing battle. In the church today, there are people in high places, in churches, denominations, who deny the physical resurrection of Christ. And these these kinds of ideas that, again, are influenced by philosophical perspectives, these, these ideas tend to... Uh, just eventually make their way through much of the church. But when we embrace any of those ideas, as I said, we lose. And not only do we lose, here's something that is so important to think about. Not only do we lose, everyone loses. Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, there is no good news for this weary world. That's the reality. If Christ did not rise from the dead, we have got nothing good to look forward to. The best we can look forward to is a continuation of the craziness that has been human history. And so... If Christ isn't risen, there is no savior to rescue us from ourselves. There is, in the end, no meaning, purpose, or point to life. That's how significant, that's how radical this this teaching is. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then Paul said it, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But really, all people. Would, would need to be pitied because, again, it would mean that there is no hope. But the evidence all points to Christ having indeed risen from the dead. And as Paul says earlier, that he has become the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. And remember that first fruits, that is, that's a reference to a Jewish feast on which uh, one sheaf was waved by the priest before the Lord, and that one sheaf was a symbol and a promise of the whole harvest that would come. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the promise that we too, who trust in him, will rise from the dead. Now, Pastors uh, John and Char uh, did an excellent job walking us through Paul's arguments for the resurrection in the first 34 verses of this chapter. And so if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. If you if you didn't, um, if, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go to the website, cccm.com, go back and watch um, those two teachings. And, and that will tie everything together because, of course, we're picking up here today in verse 35. So in verses 35 through 50, we come to Paul's explanation of what this mind-boggling... See, This is the thing I, I want us to, to grab hold of today. Sometimes we, we can get so familiar with the things of the Spirit, so familiar with the teaching of the Bible, oh yes, Jesus rose from the dead, sometimes the the profundity of that escapes us. I mean, this is mind-boggling news. It's so mind-boggling that people think it's a myth. (laughs) There's no way that, that couldn't have happened. And the Corinthians have fallen into that particular trap here. And so in these verses, Paul is explaining this mind-boggling event of the resurrection and what it will look like for those who have trusted in Christ. And so in verses 35 through 44, Paul answers Corinthian Corinthian skepticism and sarcasm with a lesson from nature. Look at verse 35, but some will ask, and I I think we can understand here that they're asking sarcastically. They're asking in unbelief. They're asking with the presupposition that everybody knows this kind of thing could never happen. And so, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what body will they come? Paul's response, how foolish. So there's a little back and forth here between Paul and his audience. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So in other words, Paul's saying, this, this idea that you just think is completely beyond reality Paul says, we see this all around us in nature. So he's wanting to show them that this isn't as far-fetched as they might be thinking it is at this point. Because just look around. Look at nature. We see that what what you plant, the seed that you put into the ground, is not what comes out. And so he goes on in verse 39. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly body is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead." The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now, remember the Corinthians, these former pagans, these Gentiles, these idol worshipers, They're not the the first people to have a problem with this idea of the resurrection. Remember the group known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were kind of the counterpart to the Pharisees. And in, in the situation during the time of Jesus, both of them were religious parties One was a conservative religious party, that was the Pharisees, and the other was a more liberal or progressive religious party, that was the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. And remember, perhaps, that story where they come to Jesus and they bring this hypothetical situation about this woman who marries this man, and then the man dies, and then she marries his brother, and then the brother dies, and then she goes through seven brothers. And so they're they're trying to show the absurdity of a resurrection. There can't be a resurrection. It would create so much confusion if there was a resurrection. For example, who would she really be married to, having been married to all seven of them? But Jesus said this to them. He said, you err greatly because you do not know, number one, the scriptures, and number two, you don't know the power of God. And you know, I would say that those questioning the resurrection today, those doubting it, those insisting that, you know, this isn't really a real physical resurrection. This was more just um, a spiritual kind of a resurrection or just an idea of resurrection that we're uh, to embrace those do, people, do not know the scriptures of the power of God. And so, Paul just walks us through this, this um, journey, in a sense, through some natural examples of the resurrection. You plant a seed, it goes into the ground, it dies, and then. A body springs forth. The body is not like the seed, although there's a relationship. You know, we've we've probably all done this. We've probably all planted some sort of a bulb or some sort of a uh, seed. You know, where you, uh, especially like like a bulb of a of a nice flower. You know, you look at this thing and it's just so like this. This is going to be a flower. How is that going to happen? Well. Paul's likening our current situation to what is going to be in the future. You you look at us now and you think, well, how could this be? This this glorious thing that's being talked about here. Well, in just the same way that 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 bulb can be uh, transformed into a glorious, beautiful flower. Now, As we go into the next verses, Paul says, in verse 45, he says, so it is written. So he he points them to to nature first, just like, hey, this this is happening all around you. But then he he goes to scripture. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And listen to this. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Wow, that that verse right there, I, this is a verse that has just grabbed my heart for, for decades. It, because the it's an expression of absolute certainty. As, as sure as you have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, we are the descendants of Adam. And as sure as we have borne his image, we will one day bear the image of the heavenly man but the way paul spells it all out here i just think it's so brilliant you know the but the natural comes first and then the spiritual so he's really uh, you know despite their skepticism and sarcasm he's really quite graciously just explaining to them you know this isn't all that complicated surely it's amazing Surely it's miraculous, but we're dealing with God. You think of Paul when he was preaching to um, one one of the Roman officials, and he said, why would you think it something strange that God should raise the dead? Now, the dead being raised is strange, but... When you put God into the equation, that takes the strangeness out. And as you know, some have said, sometimes it, it seems a bit uh, simple, but it, but it really is a reality. Look, if, if we can believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the word created there means that he created them out of nothing, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, is there anything else that would be difficult for the Lord? And so that's why Paul asks, King Agrippa, why, why would you think it's strange that God would raise the dead? That God would, of course, God could do anything. And what the gospel was proclaiming was that God had raised Christ from the dead and that he would raise us from the dead. So in, in these verses, um, we, we don't have time, you know, we, we're pressed for time today, um, and we could probably spend. I mean, we we could actually spend a lot more time on this chapter because there's so many things in this chapter. There are so many incidentals in this chapter. There's um, just a, a couple of them, real quick. There's uh, one one incidental, and and these, you know, there's an apologist in me that that always sort of gravitates towards some of these things, but. Um, there's an apologetic against the evolutionary idea, a couple of evolutionary ideas, actually. Uh, but, but one idea is that all life uh, has a common uh, origin or common ancestor. But Paul contradicts that. He says, no, humans have one kind of flesh, and animals have a different kind of flesh. Evolution would teach that we all evolve from one thing. The Bible says, no, we did not do that. Uh, Another thing is Paul says here that Adam actually was the first man. He was the first man. And he tells us that he was made of dust. Now, some Christian thinkers, in their desire to accommodate what is perceived as a more intellectual perspective on some of these things, they, they will compromise and come up with ideas like, well, you know, um, Adam and Eve, they, they probably weren't the first people. Uh, there was, you know, they probably were actually uh, part of a Neolithic race that, that existed, and yet at a certain point in time, God sort of just touched them And he made them aware of his presence. And and that's how they came into existence. Because we know that there couldn't have just been two people. And, and, you know, I mean, certain theologians who who dabble with liberal ideas, they, they come up with these kinds of suggestions. But the problem is, Paul says that, not only was Adam the first man, but he was made of the dust. He, didn't, he was not a descendant from a Neolithic race. He was not just a hominid that at some point God enlightened. No, he was made of dust, just like Genesis said. And just like Jesus taught. So, point being, there are so many things that we could delve more deeply into here. But, but what I want us to see before we move into verse 50 is I want us to just think for just this moment about, again, bearing the image of the heavenly man. Bearing the image of the heavenly man. As sure as you're sitting here today, as sure as you're in a body that you uh, was passed down to you from generation to generation, beginning with Adam, As sure as that is is a reality, you will bear in the future the image of the heavenly man. God has an amazing, glorious, unimaginable, unthinkable future in store for those who have trusted in him. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. He's, He's the one. And Jesus rose, the the distinction between the resurrection of Jesus and other resurrections that we have in the Bible is, of course, that Jesus rose to never die again. Jesus rose, and he rose in a body that was the same body because he bore the, the, the wounds from the crucifixion, but it was also different. It was a glorified body. And so, as, as Paul is saying, there are earthly bodies. Those are the ones we're obviously living in now, but there are also heavenly bodies. And we who have borne the image of the earth, the man of dust, will bear the image of the man of heaven. That's what everyone who believes in Christ has to look forward to the glorified state, ruling and reigning with Christ in a new body that is no longer subjected to sin and corruption and and all of those things that we deal with here and now. So that brings us to the final verses here. And so Paul says in verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters. So this is, he's sort of, in a sense, he's summing it up, but then he's transitioning. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So the kingdom of God, now we've talked a lot, even in in this series, we've talked about the kingdom that's already, but not yet. Uh, We are part of the kingdom, we've entered into the kingdom, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and so forth. And so in, in one sense, the kingdom is here, but in its ultimate sense, the kingdom isn't here. And what Paul is also telling us is that The kingdom in his ultimate sense uh, cannot be entered into um, by flesh and blood. So, he then says this. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And just note, when Paul says sleep, he's talking about dying. We will... We can just read it that way. We will not all die, but we will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, speaking of those who are alive at the time, will be changed. Now, there's a few things here that we need to consider. So Paul here, he's talking about the resurrection, but he's also talking about this translation of the living saints. He is going to talk about the worldwide demonstration of Christ's victory over death. And then finally in verse 58, he will call us to fully give ourselves to the work of the Lord. But let's back up and look for a moment uh, at verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Paul, it seems, was given this understanding of this this idea that there would be a generation of people who would not die, but who would be instantly translated into the glorified state. So when he says, I show you a mystery... The word here, mystery, is a word that means, and is used this way throughout the New Testament, something previously hidden, but now being revealed. So Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you something that has not yet really been clarified. Now, there there have been hints at this. Jesus hinted at it. I think, in Luke 21. But here, Paul is going to really spell it out. And so, he's going to basically say a generation of believers in Jesus will not die, but will undergo an instantaneous transformation to the glorified state. There's one other place in the New Testament where Paul describes this event here. And it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And let let me read it. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul's assumption is that that could happen in his lifetime. Um, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, the words caught up in verse 17 here, um, in the Latin translation, uh the word that's used is the word that we get our English word rapture from. So this is a rapture text. But this is a, a, a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is essentially saying the same thing in both passages, but he's, he's saying them in, in a bit of a different context. But there's obviously some... Um, The context is similar as well because the question is for the Thessalonians, the question is, what about the people that have died? The Lord hasn't come back yet, and some of our brothers and sisters have died. So in their minds, they're thinking that, well, they've missed the kingdom. And so Paul is saying, No, they haven't missed the kingdom. And they we will not precede them. In other words, when uh, when Christ returns, they will be raised. And when we talk about resurrection, just know this, resurrection always refers to the bodily resurrection. It's always the body. So people often ask this question, well, like, you know, what what is this talking about? Like, well, you know, where do, where do people go after they die and And why does it say that the dead will rise first? Does that mean that they've just been sort of, you know, sleeping for thousands of years? You know, what what does it mean? No, it, it means their bodies. Because the resurrection is about the body, as we've been seeing, about the body, your body, my body, not being discarded, not being done away with, but being glorified. So Paul's talking to them about that, and he describes it as this, this being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So this, this transitional thing takes place instantly, as Paul said to the Corinthians as well, in, the, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, the Greek word here is the word harpazo, which means, as is translated, caught up, or it can mean suddenly taken away. But this is what I want us to see. The point isn't as much on being taken away as it is on being immediately translated to the glorified state. And I think it's it's important that we see that. Because a lot of times the emphasis has been on being taken away, being caught up, getting out of this place. Because it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, so we're, we're just getting out of here. But I don't think that's the... I don't think that's what Paul really had in mind when he was teaching us this. I don't, I don't think he was saying okay, you guys just know this, man. It's all going to burn, so just buckle your seatbelt. won't be long, and then we'll be out of here. He certainly couldn't have been saying that because 2,000 years have passed since he said these words. But that's the way it's been interpreted by many in the last several decades. And it's been a way that I have at times interpreted it as well. But I think, again, the real point is that he's talking about this this immediate translation to the glorified state. And so he's talking about resurrection. He's talking about this translation to the glorified state. And then he says this in verse 53. He says, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, so when this event takes place, that's what he's describing, and the mortal, um, the perishable with the um, imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And this is something that I think is oftentimes missed Because when we think of this event, again, we tend to think of it, we we tend to think of it more subjectively, like this is for us to get us out of this mm, God-forsaken world. And, And there's that element to it, of course. There's a judgment that's coming, and God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. But this event is not so much about us as it's about Christ. That's what we need to understand. What this event is going to do is it's going to display the victory of Jesus over death to all the world. Now, think about this. There were, in comparison, relatively few people who experienced encountered the resurrected Christ. We know from earlier in the chapter, Paul says that one you know 500 people saw him at one time. Uh, that, that's amazing. But in comparison, there were relatively few. The gospel has gone out historically. People have responded to the gospel. By believing that Christ rose from the dead, But we know, by and large, the vast majority of the world, if they even think about Jesus at all, when they hear about the resurrection, they just dismiss that as a fable. This event is going to be God's vindication, in a sense, of his son. This event is going to display to the world the victory of Christ over death. And so, it is a fulfillment of the amazing promise of God through the prophet Hosea. The Lord spoke through Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14, and he said this, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death O death I will be your plagues O grave I will be your destruction Paul is saying when this event happens when people all around the world simultaneously are translated into glory immediately then this saying will come true This will be the demonstration. And of course, at the return of Christ, it will be an even more crystal clear uh, demonstration of his victory over death. So Paul having said that, he then says this. Well, he, he goes on, he says, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so in other words, in light of everything that I've been telling you about the resurrection, this is how you are to respond. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, now let me just put it in the negative for a second. Our response is not to adopt an escapist mentality. We're not to adopt an escapist mentality. We're here in the world to do something. And if we're always thinking, I just want to get out of here. We just need to escape. We're not going to be able to do what we're here to do. So we don't want to adopt an escapist mentality Nor should we be sitting around trying to put all the pieces of the end times puzzle together. People have been occupying themselves with that for decades and it always proves fruitless because nobody ever gets it right. Let's just be honest. How many times have we heard the predictions and been told the scenarios, and this is how it's all going to unfold, and this is how it's all going to happen, and then everything in the world changes. And so we got to come up with another interpretation. But we're not intended to do that. We're not to make predictions about the Lord's return. This is something that he has put in his own time. You think of the apostles themselves. I mean, after the resurrection of Jesus, just before the ascension, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought that, okay, this is it. This this is what we... Now, you know, we thought you were just going to come and bring in the kingdom. We didn't realize there was going to be a cross and a resurrection and all that, but surely now that all of that is done, all of that unforeseen stuff has come to pass, surely now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, right? And what did Jesus say? He said, it is not for you to know, it is not for you to know things that the Father has put in his own time. It's not for you to know that. You're not to be preoccupied with that, but... You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to go out, and you're going to be witnesses to me to the end of the earth. This is something that they did not foresee. For them, it was like, okay, man, this, this whole cross thing really threw us, for a, threw us for a loop, but the resurrection solved all that, so surely now is the time for the kingdom, but... It's not for you to know that. So, God help us not to continue to make the mistakes of predicting when the Lord is going to return. Rather, what do we do? Stand firm in our faith. Stand firm in our faith, not being moved every time the sand shifts under our feet. Just standing firm in our faith. Because if we believe that Christ died and rose again, then we believe that Christ will come again. And he will come and sort it all out in his time. And so we are to stand firm. We are to let nothing move us. We are to always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Or as the New King James says, that we are to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Or other translations say we are to excel in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? Well, of course, the work of the Lord is is getting the gospel to those who haven't heard it. And discipleship is the work of the Lord. And serving one another as the people of God is the work of the Lord. And serving the community that God has placed us in is the work of the Lord. And seeking to advance the influence of the kingdom of God as far and wide as we can in this world, that is the work of the Lord. And we are to be excelling in it. We are to be abounding in it. We are to give ourselves fully to it. You know, there's so many people today just kind of running around, directionless. They know about Jesus. They 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 received the gospel, but they've got all other kinds of priorities. Paul says, give yourself fully. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whatever you do for Jesus, he sees it. He appreciates it. And one day he's gonna reward us for it. So give ourselves, in light of all this, this is, this is again Paul's conclusion. In light of all this, let's, let's give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You're, you're never gonna regret doing that. At the end of your life, you're never gonna say, I shouldn't have served the Lord as diligently. But of course, many often say, I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have been more serious. Let's not be that group of people. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this great, amazing promise of the resurrection, the glorified body, the translation of the saints, Lord, we who are alive, if it's us, if it's our generation, hallelujah, Lord, that's amazing, if it's another generation, then it's okay because, Lord, it, in the end, it's all the same. Raised in glory. bearing the image of the heavenly man. That's our destiny. Oh, how we thank you for that. Lord, help us to fully give ourselves to you.